You're listening to a 7th edition Call of Cthulhu podcast titled Cthulhu in Cairo, brought to you by the Bardic College. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to the show to receive notifications as our future episodes release. You can visit us on Facebook at the Bardic College. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Bardic College Presents Cthulhu in Cairo. (laughs) I'm Raz, your keeper, and we wanted to take a few minutes to answer some questions that you, our fans, have submitted over the course of the six months or so that the show's been running, and also give you some insight into all the work that goes into our shows that you listen to week in and week out. As you know, we recently have been nominated, or maybe you didn't know, for the Best New Real Podcasts, uh, Real Play Podcast of the Year, and we're very excited that we're being considered for this award. We appreciate that you, uh, you know, our family and friends out there, are listening every week to the shows and following us on all our various social media platforms. We also want to send a very special thank you, obviously, to our Patreon members, uh, who are helping us grow our advertising, improving our equipment, and help us purchase the art, music, and editing software that we use to fine-tune the shows that you all, that we offer. Now, if you'd like to vote for us, which we hope you would, you can find the link and instructions on how to cast your ballot for us on our Cthulhu in Cairo or our Bardic College Facebook pages. While there, you can also link in to our Patreon account and enjoy all the additional bonus content that we record. That's interviews with the players, uh, when the GMs who run our shows, plus exclusive adventures with your favorite characters that give you insight into the events that shaped them and sort of guided the players on where they would go from their past experiences. All right, but that's enough of the shameless promotions for now. <laughs> Let's take a moment uh, and dive into some of the questions that you've had regarding the show Cthulhu and Cairo. So the biggest one we've always been asked, or I've been asked, is where did the idea come from? Um, well, the idea came from literally where ideas come from. Um, I've been running games for almost four decades, uh, and, you know, it, people that you tend to run with a lot, uh, they sort of guide you into what you're looking for. Yeah, that scream you hear in the background is a little bit of music. I'll just had something on to set a mood, (laughs) which is a perfect time for that scream. In Cthulhu and Cairo, it's ah! So that would probably be Faye or Catherine. Um, so two of the people that are intimately involved in this show uh, are real Egypt files. Uh, that would be Joel and Kayla. Uh, I also would consider myself very passionate about like the history of you know ancient civilizations and things of that nature. And believe it or not, in the Oh, God, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of running games and writing. I never really delved into Egypt. Uh, So I said to myself, okay, well, that's great. Uh, I can do something with Egypt, I'm sure. And I began doing some research. Um, Most of my games, especially the horror-based games, do have quite a bit of research involved in them. I try to tie in and correlate events that people feel semi-familiar with uh, and weave them into a story. So I basically said, okay, what are some of the big points I want to add to the show or to this campaign? Uh, I knew I wanted to do Cairo or Egypt. I knew I wanted to do something with Aleister Crowley because he had been in Egypt uh, for his you know, infamous honeymoon. 
um, with Rose Kelly. And I knew that from there, I wanted it to be a pulp era sort of story. So what are some of the great pulp elements? Well, that would be Nazis and zombies and all that other kind of stuff. So I sat there and said, how do I make all that sort of come together? And I said, okay, we're going to start with a year. And I started in the year 1930, and it wasn't quite as I was doing my background research early enough, I'm sorry, late enough, to kind of coalesce uh, the characters moving about in a particular pattern, or where they were going to need to go for the story as it was leading me there. Uh, And then I stumbled upon a fact that Crowley faked his own death, and there was a poet. Uh, Fernando Pessoa, who was intimately involved with this idea that Aleister Crowley had tried to kill himself to elude the authorities for some transgression or other. And that's when the year clicked in my head. And then I said, okay, so what was Hitler and the bad guys in Germany at that time, uh, those men who would finally lead the Socialist Party, what were they doing in the year 1931? And I found those pieces. And then I said, okay, what else was going on around the world in 1931? And how can I sort of tie all that together? And that's really where uh, the idea came from uh, for Cthulhu and Cairo. It grew from a love of Egypt and Egyptology from two of my players uh, into this idea of, you know, a, a much bigger, grander sort of game. Uh, that leads us to our next question, which was, did I set out to write a massive campaign or did it just happen? No, um, it started out in my head as something that would only take, I don't know, uh, you know, 20 hours or so, five, six sessions. And then I started thinking to myself, well, wait a minute, you know, this, this is a big idea. Like this could start really blossoming. And the more research I did, uh, into this historical you know, idea of this year, 1931, um, it, it began to just take on a mind of its own and it became a creature, which a lot of times my stories will do. I, I swear that when I say it's only <laughs> a one or two shot, and then six months later, we're all looking at each other going, what the hell just happened? Um, because the players guide so much of what's going on. Um, they're so involved in... Um, you know, the the ideas and the writing, and then when they build their characters, um, it, it just it just helps push as a player and as a keeper the ideas on where you want to take them and how you want to see them handle some of the struggles. So, yeah, no, when I set out to do it, it wasn't supposed to be that that massive, ugly, you know, huge show that it became um, or a campaign. It was supposed to simply be you know, what it was, um, a game for our friends, uh, and our fan, you know, that we could turn into a podcast, hopefully. And that's sort of where it went from there. So no, I, I never set out originally to, you know, do these massive, massive games. It just sort of comes that way. Um, another question is how did you decide on which players to assemble for the show? Well, in some instances, we're, I'm incredibly blessed. Uh, everybody has a tale of how they find their players. Uh, I just have to go next door and knock on a door. Uh, both of my daughters, uh, during COVID, 
my wife and I have them both home still. Um, one is, you know, in that age where she's already starting to look to move on from the house and the other is still kind of finishing up college. But I have two players that I can fall back on right away and they've been doing this themselves for, you know, 10, 11 years. Um, but then, of course, I would always go and I would look, seek out Joel. Joel has been, um, God, Joel has been with me for ages and ages and ages. So, if, you know, I, if there's ever a chance that I'm going to run something big, and like I said, this one tended to be because he was so intense in um, the whole idea of Egyptology that I wanted to make sure he was involved as well. So, Joel was there. Uh, Melinda, Melinda comes from, who plays Faye Dawson, Melinda comes from, of course, being very close friends to my two daughters. She's been around the house for on and off, oh god, 10 or 11 years herself. She's played in games that I've run before. So I, I had this, this group of younger women and older guys that I had grown up and role-played with, myself, Joel, together. And then we had a friend who was very interested in learning and playing Cthulhu himself. He had been a role player, and that would be, you know, just Scott, who plays Professor Schooley. He had been involved in our clients of RPGs and just really hadn't stumbled fully into Cthulhu as an RPG. He's done all kinds of other stuff. He's read it. He's a massive fan of the genre. Uh, so he had a, a strong background in Cthulhu, but um, not so much as the system. And I reached out to him, and, and I, I had played other games with Scott. We had been in a campaign that someone else was running for a while, and it just seemed to make sense. He had the right temperament. He was um, old, a little bit older school, but that was okay because, you know, it, it felt right, the way, you know, putting him in with Joel. And then, so what you, <laughs> what you really have is, and someone pointed this out, you have three old men and three young women. Um, and not saying that we're that old, but... That's sort of where this the, the, the groups kind of came. And it, it works. The, the guys are a little bit, you know, they're very, um, they play that 1930s well. And, and they, the girls lean on them a little bit because they have more of a, of a knowledge of that period of history. Not that they're, again, that old. But they have that knowledge of the pulps and, you know, the fans of the shadow because their fathers listened or, you know, they were turned on to it by somebody else. That gentlemanly, suave, Gary Cooper-esque sort of thing they're able to bring that to the table and the young women bring a sort of modernist feminist twist to the gun mall type you know with Aveline and and the whole thing that goes on with her um Catherine being an independent young woman who went to war and and Faye the you know the Indiana Jones type they they were able to grab those archetypes and bring a modern twist on them uh, but the boys were always the the rock that sort of held the pulp stuff together. You know the <laughs> the the smoker who leans in the corner and exhales, and you see his eyes light up for a minute as he glows on his cigarette and blow you know and drags on it. Those are those are the characters that they kind of came together. So the group formed really just because of convenience, uh, but also the skill level of the players. I you know my girls and and Faye came up together through it, so I knew that they had been introduced real heavy to the RPG. I don't run light games, I'm just that kind of a jerk. <laughs> um, and Joel's been doing it so long he could run it in his sleep or go through it. So, yeah, it um, 
that's how I sort of assembled the cast for the show. So that's a good question. Uh, people always say, you know, how do you make the team fit? How do you alleviate the drama? Um, a lot of times, especially when you're doing a show like this, uh, drama has to be checked at the door. And you have to let everybody play their role. And as a keeper, I don't, I try to balance that really well. Um, sometimes just because of the story itself, I have to pull something back or say no. Uh, I try not to hold out a reveal. Matter of fact, in the shows coming up, there's going to be a, a, a nighttime that they do. And I'll just mention it's at a well, D nothing else to give away there. Something happens there that literally shifted the entire dynamic of how I was working and running the show. And it came out of a split-second idea that that happened. And what I'm getting at with that is, you know, you have to let the players play their role and have their moments. You have to let make sure that Sid has that time to fix things or he has his moment to have, a, a, a you know, that spotlight. Um, think of it like the Russo brothers. When you're building a group, you want to make sure that just like the Marvel characters and the casts in the Marvel movies, when they do the collaborations, you got to make sure all the fans get to hear their or see their favorite characters, right? You got to let those players have those moments. So Aveline has her sneaky moments. Catherine has her mothering, you know, concerned moments. Faye has her, you know, curiosity drags me into the pit of hell moments. Professor Schooley has his charisma moments where he's able to use his contacts. All that has to keep going in the story and build on so that the players enjoy the characters, why they made them, and the team gels. Because without those things, you're, yeah, drama's going to happen and the show's going to, or your campaign is going to go, and, you know, if you have a, a, a rogue and it's not a lot of thieving to be done, the rogue's going to get bored. You know, you, things of that nature, the D&D &D concept. So that's how the group came together. That's sort of how the group stays together and gels on the show. Uh, everybody does their part. Everybody lets each other have their moments. And that really, I think, makes for better storytelling. Uh, so there's only a couple more questions here. Let's see. Have you always been interested in horror and the occult? Um, yes and no. That's That's a freaky question. So... I love the idea of macabre horror. Um, I really enjoy the classic stuff. Um, I like the Hammer films. I love Poe. Absolutely adore Poe's storytelling. I like H.P. Lovecraft. Um, the the classic guys that you go to through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, even back into the 30s and 40s, the older movies, uh, The Invisible Man, um, amazing, amazing movie for its time. Um, there's a bunch of them that, that I could make a list for and post, but that horror works for me. I'm not a fan of slasher films. As much as you're going to hear some pretty heavy descriptions coming up in the next few weeks of some dark stuff, which drags from the Lovecraft side, I prefer my horror to be more, um, a little bit more off to the, in the corner, a little bit you know, stalking and the fear of getting caught rather than the the brutalness of what happens should you be caught. That being said, not everyone in my group is afraid of the same things or is sort of gets 
into the headspace of, oh, that was scary or that wasn't scary. Uh, so the horror part, I tend to have to work hard at. I tend to have to really think, how am I going to, you know, make this happen? Um, now, that being said, the occult part, no. Since I was a young kid, always been fascinated by voodoo. Uh, Serpent in the Rainbow, massive shout out. Um, love that movie. Love the idea of, you know, the the magic behind the veil, the, the things that happen when, you know, people mess around with, um, you know, things they're not supposed to. That kind of stuff, I, I just absolutely, I love. And I don't, I myself read a lot about it uh, as a kid, always kind of played darker characters in the RPGs that I was fortunate enough to play in because most of my career has been as a keeper or a GM, uh, but always looking to, you know, have that awkward, odd moment um, surrounded by the occult. So, yeah, the the occult side, the fool society, the idea of a secret society that's out there trying to take over the world, all that stuff, and the magic that goes with it, and the rituals, and the and Constantine, to think of a more modern one. Um, yeah, that's always been a part of my life. Red Hellblazer when they were coming out every month back in the 90s and late 80s, or mid-80s. So, Sandman, fascinated by that stuff, yeah. So, horror and the occult, horror a little harder for me, have to work at it, have to really think how bad should I take it. The occult, that comes naturally, so. Um, and the last one here is uh, interesting. At what age do you think you should be introduced or introduce someone to role-playing games? Uh, that's a great, that's another great two-part question. So, it's never too late to play a role-playing game. Um, it's never too late to enjoy putting on a different hat and running around imagining that you have a gift or a skill or that you've been thrust into a situation that takes you away from the mundane world that we all have to survive in. Um, for many of us, the our existence is very regimented, very uh, set up uh, with a nine to five or a three to eleven. Whatever your shift is, it becomes a grind. There is many different forms of escape in our world. Uh, there's music, um, recreation, stimulation, uh, alcohol, this that, whatever is legal in your area. There's um, you can dance, you can go out to clubs. What? There's a thousand ways to decompress. But role-playing is a little different because you're compressing in a lot of cases, especially in a Cthulhu and Cairo or our other big show that's very horror-based, Hellfire Nights. Um, you're actually stressing yourself out in your free time, which which sounds kind of like counterproductive, right? It sounds like, why would I want to sit here and beat myself up or have myself beaten up, go insane or killed um, as a hobby. Well, when you, when you put it into a, a, the idea that you're still doing amazing things, you're spending time with people 
uh, at a table usually. In the case of our world right now, it's all done via internet, which makes recording and editing the show much more challenging. But you have this idea that you just want to step away um, and, and go into another world. And if that world consists of these things that plague humanity and you're the only one who can stop it or, you know, a mystery that needs to be solved, um, a creature that is, you know, is just coiling in the corner that is terrorizing an orphanage or whatever it is, you are going to help bring that to an end and it's going to be intense. And yeah, that's exciting. Like it, it makes for reading a great mystery novel, but you're the center of the attention. You're the guy on or the girl on the page. And for a lot of people, that's an amazing, amazing aphrodisiac, right? That's what gets us. I can tell you there are nights the cast calls me like, oh God, you know, I'm just not in the right headspace. We start recording and five minutes in, they're giving a performance that knocks me out. Like, wow, you know, um, I have one player specifically among the two shows um, that, you know, is, it's like, oh, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And yet comes in and pow, every time I'm going, wow, I don't know how much it's much better than that. That was that was pretty damn good, considering you weren't ready. So, you know, it introducing them at any age uh, is a great, like, especially older. It's a great hobby. It's a great way to be with people that you care about. It's a great, great system. Uh, no matter which one you choose, enjoy it. You, ha you have a passion, whether it be Star Trek, Firefly, D&D, &D, Pathfinder, Traveler, uh, Chill, Cthulhu, uh, just... and God, I'm missing about a hundred of them. The Expanse is new. Um, Legends of the Five Rings, Conan, whatever it is, put yourself in the world and have fun. So, older people, absolutely never too late. Young, okay. Depends on the system. There are many systems that are looking to get people in around nine or ten. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that maybe for Cthulhu. It to me, this it's a it's a darker game and that depends on the keeper i mean you could do something like you know um a bike uh bikeali or however you say the word that particular one animal you could have him terrorizing a town and you go and save it and nobody goes nuts yeah you could do that if <clears throat> you feel you know the people you're running are mature enough to sit at the table and understand the the you know the idea of the horror but i i think horror games need to be a little bit later uh, a little bit further along, not so early introduced, but that's me. If you know you're the parent, the guardian, the the GM, and you feel responsibly that you can that you can introduce it to a younger person, and they're going to take to it, uh, I think ten's a strong age. Their imagination is still intact. They still, you know, they probably don't have an imaginary friend, but it, maybe they do. That's fine. That's great, but. It gives them, they still remember what it's like to make believe. And in role playing, really what you're doing is you're make believing, right? You're a, you're an adult that <laughs> likes to make believe. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that's awesome. So I guess the right age is a maturity level. And if you can get somebody interested enough and passionate enough to say, okay, I want to try this. I'm going to put my heart and soul in it. 
I have played with people who have not stayed in the hobby. Uh, I have played with people who gave it a shot and finally said, just not for me. But I've also helped launch. Hopefully they stayed. But as far as I knew, they did for quite some time. People into the hobby that just never wanted to leave. And that's great. You know, it, it, it's not an expensive hobby. You don't have to buy a $100 Paradise. You can do six ninety nine. They roll the same. Um, you don't have to invest in a lot of books. You probably need one to get started. There's a lot of companies that put out a base set. So, yeah, you can spend hours and hours with friends and family and really keep the costs minimal and write your own script, write your own story. I think that's great. So those kind of answer the questions, the, the main ones that we've had over the last couple of months since starting the show. Um, so we're, we're going to do something that we sort of decided on and we thought this would be fun for you. We're going to take a clip from one of our solo adventures that's normally a Patreon exclusive. We, because it's exclusive, we really can't give you the entire show, but we're going to take a couple of minutes of it and let you listen to Catherine Ross's solo adventure just to show you what we're doing on that, you know, in that part of the, the storytelling. Catherine, as you know, was a World War I nurse. She was engaged to uh, a gentleman who died in the war. And this is the adventure, this is the story that led Catherine into a place that became very difficult for her to deal with and sort of shapes her personality that she is today. That I don't get close to people, but yet I'm close to people. I don't care, but yet put your coat on. I don't trust anyone, but come with me to an insane asylum and be my husband. You know, Catherine is this duality, and that duality was caused by several events in her past. And this story focuses on one of those events. So you're going to hear a part of that, and it's going to be, you know, a segment. So I'm kind of just setting it up for you. And it does turn into a very weird and dark place as the show as that show goes on. So this is we normally be have this would be a two parter about two hours and ten minutes. Um, we do solo adventures with all of our players throughout the months. We only have a few posted now because the Patreon is new. Uh, we have John Schoolies up and Catherine's, but we have all the interviews with the characters with the uh, players rather called Getting to Know. So that's on there too. So this is just as I said, this is a segment that you can enjoy uh, about Catherine Ross and her time in the British Army serving in France in 1917 during World War I. So let me let you get to it. A lot of that comes from the fact that you're an American, that you studied over in London and then decided to enlist with the British Army, changing, you know, signing the papers that gave up your autonomy as an American citizen. You did all those things to try to jump over and join the war effort, which was you know, touted as, you know, very heroic in the beginning, and everybody, you know, was, you know, happy to have a Yank on board. But Billings just seems to be one of those people that doesn't think you should be here. But, que sera, sera. So you're working over by um, redressing a wound of a man who has uh, some damage to the his shoulder. Uh, he's busted up pretty bad, but he's on a heavy morphine kick, so he's pretty much out of it. and. From a window in this part of the house, you hear a soft tapping. I finish uh, dressing the wound, and I 
go up and I look out the window. Okay, you, as you approach, it's tapping again, and you see the familiar face of Corporal Billy McPherson. Billy is in the same unit as Matthew Langford. Uh, Matthew is obviously the man that you have decided to try to spend the rest of your life with. He proposed to you several months ago. Neither of you have had any extended leave at this point to get back to a town where there's actually a, a minister or a chaplain uh, to finish the vows. In France, it would be a priest. So you really haven't had a chance to tie the knot formally, but uh, the two of you have been engaged now for several months. Uh, Billy is there, and do you lift the window open? Um, do you try to go around outside to see him? Uh, there is an exit at the back of the, the hospital or house uh, where you could meet him outside. It's up to you. I motion him towards the rear exit to the building. I don't want to disturb the patients and lift the window and have a conversation in this room. Okay, yeah, it's September, so it's a it's a bit on the brisk side at night. Not to mention the fact that if you went to you know if you stayed at the window too long, you'd probably be seen. Uh, so you take the dirty dressings, you uh, dispose of them uh, in a bin marked for such things, and make your way around to the back of the house. Everything in here, with the exception of the kitchen, has been reconstituted with hospital beds. A lot of double stackers, which wasn't very common, but in this house it's fairly good size. But the number of wounded they knew was going to be pretty intense in the fighting in this area. So they've even done some double stack beds with men who can, and you know, like arm wounds would be on the top where whole bodies or legs would be on the lower end. You go out the back door and sure enough... You bump, you know, you kind of keep your hands across your chest, you're trying to stay a little warm. You can see your breath in the, in the, you know, the the September night air. And as you come around the corner, hiding by some tanks of water, is Billy McPherson. Billy is uh, young, nineteen, and he's just one of those. If if there was a description for Billy, it would be class clown. He tends to be pretty jovial, kind of always has something fun to say. But over the last several weeks, you've been noticing a slight change whenever you see him. So he sits, he stands there, and he's like, Oi, Kat, sorry, I hope I didn't get you in trouble. No, you didn't. A cup of tea got me in trouble this evening, not you. <laughs> well, what, did you have milk in it? <laughs> no, I was resting my feet for about 30 seconds when Billings came over and decided to, you know, chew me out. It was good fun. Yeah, I'd rather face a hun with a bayonet than that lady. She's got, <laughs> got a tongue on her like the devil. Listen, don't have a lot of time, but Matt and I were able to get back here. He's around the corner by the barn. Can you, do you have a second? Absolutely. It's a little cold, but absolutely. Like, you know, where is he? Follow me. So he takes you around. The actual barn itself, like I said, has been converted. Uh, it has privacy uh, drapes and screens and stuff up for the the nurses on one half and the men on the other, but they do have like a tie-off rope and some lean-to materials set up because there are still using horses, especially behind the lines, uh, to move freight and to help any automobiles that may get stuck in the mud closer to the front. They'll have horse horses, teams of horses pull them out. So there's still a presence of, of animals around a, uh, a World War One army encampment. So Billy brings you over to where the, the horses are pretty much tied up. And coming from around the side of the lean-to, you do see uh, Lieutenant Langford standing there. And he smiles at you and comes over and greets you with a, you know, a kiss on the forehead and a hug. 
and he says, I'm so glad to see you, darling. Wonderful to see you too, and that you're that you're safe. She does her cursory like inspection of him as she always does. It's almost become routine. Like, do you have ten fingers, ears, like toes? Like, you good? So even before the warm pleasantries are fully exchanged, she's already like, I need to make sure you're okay. So of course Billy with his sense of humor says, Hoy, need me to turn around to check out anything else? I trust that that's fine. He would have said something. You would have made a joke. I'm sure. Thank you. You're fine. It's good to see you both in good. You both in good health. Oh, she cares about me too. And I didn't even have to take off my shoes, Matt. He's like, Billy, could you give us a moment? And he says, oh, right. Came all the way back here just for this. I'm going to go off and see if I can find us a little of the Nipperuski. And he walks off and he's looking for somebody to trade with to fill up his flask with some whiskey. You know, he knows the area. He's pretty quick. Uh, you and Matt spend about ten minutes speaking quietly in soft tones, talking about the future, just trying to... He assures you that as bad as it was, he was okay. You know, this is... They knew this was coming. This had been planned for several weeks. That it would... T- you know, that today would be the day, whether it was rain or shine. And it's about that time that Billy comes back with a smile on his face and offers yourself and Matt a quick swig from an newly filled flask. I accept the flask and, you know, like a true American woman, I take a deep swig. She is not, she has never been a lady. Okay, well. She is, but she isn't. Understood. Odd dichotomy. Hmm. And Matthew watches her and then kind of just takes a small one because he realizes you drank about two or three good gulps of Billy's cigarette exchanged whiskey. And he says, well, love, listen, I'm afraid we're going to have to get back before we're missed. It was good seeing you. There is rumor, though, that before our time is due to come back on leave, to be rotated out, that we may be doing this again. There may be another push. Again, it feels like every time you go over that it's... All right. Do you know when? <sighs> uh, right now, it's the day after to Now being today, it'd be tomorrow. It is. It's a. It's after midnight. It's about quarter to one, a, you know, in the morning. So he's telling you it's not today, the day after. That's when Billy kind of gives him a look. You catch on to it. And he says, Matt, are you going to ask her? And he's like, not the time, Billy. He goes, no, this is exactly the time, Matthew. There's a definite exchange going on. Matthew turns to you and he looks at you and says, my darling... I don't even know how to ask this. I guess I'll just come right out and say it. Say it? If we had just some simple supplies given to the officers or to the men in their units that had some sort of training... Nigel fell today, my my love. He, he died. And if I could have just staunched his bleeding, if I could have packed the wound properly, he wouldn't have bled out and... Maybe he would be here tonight in bed, you know, as opposed to out there in the field uh, in a mass grave. I I just don't understand this policy anymore of, of not getting the supplies to the front line. And Billy's, you know, Billy says, you know, and interjects. He's like, it's, it's ridiculous. We're out there facing machine gun fire and we've got nothing in our kits to stop it should someone get nicked or hit. I mean, the corpsmen are overrun. 
There's no way for them to get everybody in time. We're dragging men through the mud with open wounds and nothing to clean them with. Matthew's like, I know that you can't change policy, Catherine, but I've, I lost 11 men in our unit today. If Three or four of them easily could have been saved. Is there any anything we can do? Is there anything you can do to help us? I, I I'm not sure exactly how I can help you. I'm, I'm one nurse, an American, mind you, against the protocol and rules of your, the, the, the British Army. This is. I'm so sorry about your men. I just don't know what I can do. I, I could see about trying to get you supplies. I could talk to someone. I could talk to to one of the doctors, Doctor Clark, maybe. Billy um, looks and says. Let me ask you this. Don't mean to overstep my bounds, but we don't have a lot of time, ma'am. If that whistle goes off tomorrow early, we got nothing. Who keeps the key to the supply chest? There must be a room, right? Or something. That would be Billings, and you just told me, and we agreed, that we'd rather face a German with a bayonet than deal with her. I, she is not going to be sympathetic. <sighs> He looks at his watch real quick and in the light from around like the ambient light. He kind of looks at it and goes, Matt, we gotta go. Matthew hugs you and says, I'll do everything I can to try to come back one more time. Please, Catherine, you know, understand I'm I'm not asking you to do anything illegal. I I just wish there was something, love. Something to... Somebody who would listen. Uh, these men are throwing their lives... They're risking their lives and now they're just throwing them away. And he kisses you, and he's tell, Billy kind of steps out for a second. He holds you close one more time, tells you he loves you, and then, without further looks or glances, because he's afraid his heart will break and he won't be able to hang on uh, and go back with any type of, you know, stiff upper lip, he walks himself out of the the area, crosses the road. You spend a long moment watching, and you see him... Buzz his way through camp. They kind of avoid, you know, one of the soldiers on guard who doesn't, who's half asleep at his post. They avoid him. They get out, cross again this this country lane uh, that borders the front of the farmyards, and uh, make their way into the into the actual fields themselves and head out back towards the front. It's about one a.m. It is getting rather late. You're, you know, you're fatigued, but you're also you know, young and you have a really good constitution. You're a strong, strong woman as far as, you know, toughing it out. So is there anything you want to do anywhere you want to go? If you want to go to bed and get some kit, let me know that. Um, I decide to take the long way back to my room. Okay. I want to walk past the supply room. So that's us, right? Um, you know that the Bardic College uh, puts out great shows that we continue to work to improve. Um, some of those improvements you guys don't get to see or hear immediately as the recording of our shows are in some cases months old by the time that they air and you get a chance to hear them. Uh, Cthulhu and Cairo has, I don't know, 35 or 40 hours in the bank where Hellfire Nights has uh 10 or 8 or 6 or whatever it is. But the shows are recorded in advance, so we have time to edit them for me. Uh, edit them for you. But but trust me, each and every week we learn something new 
uh, and we've worked to make it better. As I stated earlier in this episode, you know, in this special episode, recording via the internet has posed countless problems as opposed to sitting around a table mic'd up in a controlled environment playing the game. The editing is so different. The levels are different. Um, there are people and shows out there that are doing it well. We are learning. We are getting better. But it is something that, you know, sometimes you'll hear a mic fade or you'll hear a background noise that because of the older software we were using to record everyone, we can't deb out. Um, we've got better software now. So we ask, we appreciate your patience is all that we're saying. It, it is a struggle to make the shows this way, but you know, that's the way we have to do it in the world of COVID. So um, we, you know, we try to give you the best that we can, but the, the, the fixes are coming and it does get better and better. I, I, I assure you. Um, we are currently recording uh, and editing three shows. Uh, hopefully you know them all, but if not, it's Cthulhu and Cairo, which is our flagship. We have Hellfire Nights, which is going to be a limited series, even though it's big. It's not going to be nearly the size of Cthulhu in Cairo. And then we have a new show that's coming out that we're working to get out a little more regularly called Behind the GM Screen, which is where we talk to other people that kind of do what we do, maybe not as a podcast, but they run shows and, I mean, I'm sorry, run campaigns and games for people at conventions or help run conventions. And these are the people that bring all that work to the players so they can just come in, sit down, give the best performance and the best character, you know, translation that they can, and then go about their day. So these are the people that do the, the background work. So that's a show. If you haven't checked it out, it's doing well. You, you may want to jump in and, and, and join that. Also, and we've been announcing this for a while, but technical difficulties, we do have and we are working on getting a D&D 5th edition show out. Uh, we had hoped to have it out earlier this year, but it we have had to change cast a little bit and work on toning that show down, making it a little tighter. So it's really probably going to be like January before we see our first episodes. But keep, you know... Don't hold your breath, but keep your fingers crossed. It is coming. It's on its way. Uh, we have a great keeper involved for that one. It's going to be a good time. The players are have had their session zeros again. They're they're looking forward to getting into this world he's created and really tearing it apart. Uh, so just to also let you know, we we really do. We spend hours and hours each week working, creating, and in many cases, you know, doing the researching for our, our, our content so that you ladies and gentlemen are given the best gaming podcast shows that we can create. Uh, there's always going to be chances to do things a little differently. And we love the feedback. We love being told, Hey, I was listening and I thought I heard this. Or um, we had one gentleman point out, and this is a shout out to him because I thank him tremendously <laughs> that one of the towns that I looked at on an old map of England, uh, Turnsbridge Wells, I believe if I remember the name, right. Uh, was actually Royal Turnbridge Wells. It's not quite as I described it. And he's he's actually a great guy. He's, he sent it and he's like, by the way. And I said, oh, God, it was so small on the map. I didn't, you know, this particular map I was looking at, it was a dot. I figured who the heck would even recognize it. And he did. And it was like, you know, mind blown for me, right? I'm going, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't fact check that better. But the players are like, okay, let's go here. And I was, oh, 
okay, it's in Turnbridge Wells. And uh, that's sort of how I did that. So, but we appreciate that feedback, especially if it's something we can fix uh, for the future to make us better and stronger. We love that stuff. So please write in with questions, write in with feedback. We love that. Um, We know that you guys have many options out there for real play podcasts. There are tons of teams. There's tons of shows out there that you can jump around to. Uh, But in all honesty, I doubt you will find a cast more passionate about the hobby of role-playing than the ones we have assembled here. Um, Yes, we, some of them are family members, but I, I assure you they, they do bleed this stuff. They, they work hard on their characters. They speak offline all the time. They're sending each other notes. They're making comments in the background about, you know, I think, did you ever try to do this with Catherine or what, how would Catherine or Sid react to this? Sid just in the one episode in during the assassination in Berlin must have sent me oh god I don't know 40 or 50 lengthy messages throughout the week just trying to dial in you know what about this can I look at that I don't want to tie up the show with every tiny minute detail but can I do that and um so a lot of that is going on in the background these people really put their heart and souls into this and it means it's tremendous for me uh, that they're so passionate about the hobby, but also it's it's a testament to their craft. And it, it's an honor to work with those guys because couldn't do it without them, and we'd have no show without players. So just believe me when I say the Bardic College, we, we lucked into some of these people, but future shows that we are looking to bring you the best voice casts that we can. And, you know, these people are true, true professionals, even if, you know, they they do a thousand other things in their lives. They really give it up their all. So I just wanted to say uh, that that's it for tonight. Uh, we thought we would just break this up for the holiday week. We know people are going to be busy. We wanted to talk about some of this stuff, answer some of your questions. We'll be back next week with, a you know, the wrap up of Berlin. We're excited about that <clears throat> going on to a new location. Uh, chapter This is chapter one. Finishing two is coming up for you guys. And in actuality, we've just finished chapter two. So that's what I'm saying. We're so far ahead, but we love you guys. We want you to stay safe, stay healthy. And above all else, thanks for staying with us. Until next time, I'm Raz for the Bardic College, and we'll be in touch soon, okay? Take care, everybody. Good night. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cthulhu in Cairo. You can like, share, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. The music you're listening to is Return of the Mummy by the great Kevin McLeod. Join us next time to see where our intrepid explorers find themselves next.